Welcome to the 60th episode of the New Ventures Podcast. I'm your host, Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm, and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Along with my co-host, Raven McNamee, I host the podcast to help explore the applications of artificial intelligence in climate solutions. Hi, I'm Raven. I'm a metallic consultant with the Eden Smith Group, and we're a lead data agency in staffing, consultancy, education, and sustainability. I specialize in sustainability and underpinning sustainable strategies with the right talent to make a positive impact on the world around us. Our guest for today is Jada Anderson, the co-founder and chief technology officer of Xylo Systems, which is building a data and reporting cloud platform to help companies measure and manage corporate impacts on biodiversity. Welcome, Jaina. Thank you, Sanjoy and Raven. Lovely to be here. So it's great to have you on with us today, Jada. Um, but could you tell us a little bit maybe about your background and where you started and, and how you came to co-found Xylo? Yeah, sure. So I've got a background in ecology and applied mathematics. An unusual combination, I think uh, not many people have it, but it's something that led me to realise that we have a major lack in understanding of how we quantify biodiversity. And when I started looking at the intersection of ecology and applied mathematics, I was actually doing uh, my honours thesis looking at the impacts of plastic on freshwater fish. And through this research, I realised pretty quickly that academia wasn't for me. It was a fantastic experience and I learned a lot through it, but I looked elsewhere to sort of apply those skills and eventually met my co-founder, Mill Goldstone-Henry, who is now our CEO and my my fellow co-founder of Xylo Systems. And at Xylo Systems, we have a B2B SaaS platform that helps companies uh, assess their impact on biodiversity. We work specifically with property developers and energy infrastructure companies to help them do a baseline biodiversity assessment of their assets, but also give them the data that they need to make decisions that minimise their impact on biodiversity and communicate this to uh, global frameworks like the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, also known as the TNFD. Great, thank you. No, that's very interesting. I mean, could you tell us a little bit more about how you, you and your co-founder came together to, to build Xylo? Yeah, absolutely. So it's actually an interesting story because Xylo Systems originally had a different mission or, or the same ultimate mission, but a different strategy. When I was finishing up my research at university for my honours thesis, I met Camille when she was coming out of a wildlife conservation career. She had worked for over 10 years in a recovery projects for, you know, very well-known species like the Tasmanian devil, orange-bellied parrot, and also worked overseas on a variety of projects and had increasingly become frustrated with how the conservation industry uses data to make decisions and the fact that there isn't very much data-driven decision-making. A lot of the technologies used are quite old school and it means that a lot of data is stored in paper records but also just not implemented in a way that's scalable for conservationists on the ground to make informed decisions. So she had sort of come from that background working directly in the field to wanting to develop a solution that would help conservation organisations manage their data and make those decisions. And that was when I met Camille. She had actually started Silo Systems about a year before we actually met. And originally it was developing prototypes to address that problem. 
And so when we met, we were sort of testing that idea. We had created a prototype and were working with the likes of Chirunga Zoo and a few other conservation organisations to see what this would look like in practicality. And they were all very supportive of the idea. But as a startup, it's very difficult to work with customers that are relatively slow, no fault of their own due to lack of funding and a whole range of other reasons. But we also realized that we could be working with corporates. You know, they are the businesses that are having the most direct and tangible impact on biodiversity in a negative way. And there is so much that needs to be done in a very similar um, parallel problem uh, to conservation organizations and that they don't have the data that they they need to make make the decisions to minimise their impact. And that was probably talking around uh, September 2022 when we first started realising this. And at that time, there was a few other sort of global frameworks that were coming into play. You know, the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures had been in draft mode for a couple of years. We also had the COP in December last year that sort of started those discussions. And we were seeing this huge momentum in the private sector, specifically for these these industries that have a really direct interface with nature, in that they were realising that this was going to be a problem they had to deal with directly very, very soon. And so a lot of the businesses just didn't know where to start. And that was where we sort of started our journey in terms of working out exactly what it would look like for them to gather information that would help them understand their initial impact, but also looking forwards as to how can we help them develop a nature strategy And that's why we've sort of seen, particularly in the last sort of nine to 12 months, this whole idea of becoming nature positive, meaning not just having a negative impact on nature, but actually having a positive effect on nature, actively contributing to its regeneration. And we sort of see this as a parallel to net zero in the carbon space. And so that's ultimately where we went from originally tackling conservation organisations to then merging into how can we take this into a bigger picture, looking at the industries that are having that direct impact, but also those industries that are supporting biodiversity and how can we support them all in managing their biodiversity data and making data-driven decisions. What I really like about this story that you said, Jada, is the pivot that you made. I work obviously in the climate finance field and I see companies having to pivot away from what they think is the original target market to other markets where there is a greater demand and greater speed, as you pointed out, for the startups, products and services. It's also very nice for me to hear that the corporate sector is becoming concerned about their impact on biodiversity. I wanted to understand is what specifically is driving the interest of property companies and energy companies? Yeah, great question. There's a lot of different factors that have been moving forward with this, particularly in the beginning, talking about that pivot. We, in the very beginning, were talking to sustainability managers in these companies and trying to sell them on the idea of why biodiversity was important. And that just that just didn't work. They understand it, they can appreciate it, but actually developing logistics and operations that can make nature a priority was a very different story. And so that conversation naturally changed when, in around September last year, we actually interviewed sustainability managers in all kinds of industries. So that included industries that have that direct interface. So that would include property developers, energy, mining, agriculture, but also businesses that had um, impacts more through supply chains. So thinking about consumer retail, food, supermarkets, a whole range of different industries that were much more sort of indirect in their impact. And it was really interesting talking to such a wide range of sustainability managers, because I think they all realised that these businesses have an impact, but the actual tangibility of that impact was just not there because they didn't have the data available to do any kind of tracking in that sense. So what we actually realised was 
because of these industries that have that direct interface being sort of energy and infrastructure um, and mining and so on, they've already had some level of legislation in place existing. So, for example, for property developers, they usually have to do some baseline ecology assessment before they go ahead and break ground on a project. To particularly in an Australian context, which is what I can speak to best, I don't think these assessments have been very thorough. <laughs> they, they do exist, but let's just say they're quite easy to complete. And so although there was that process in place, that was sort of the thing that I think led to us realising that sustainability managers in these industries have more complexity in their understanding of their interface with nature. We were also really interested in talking to the mining and agriculture industries. I think they are just as valid in terms of the impacts that they have and the necessity for a reporting tool like ours. From a strategic point of view, though, we decided that that was probably a little bit later down the road for us, partly because for mining, there is a lot more um, complexity in terms of legislation and compliance from that perspective. And from agriculture, it's a whole other level of nature that we're actually talking about here, both from the the agricultural piece, but also that broader biodiversity interface as well. So we decided that energy and infrastructure were the ones that were the clearest path forward that we could actually really test this concept of reporting and disclosure and biodiversity assessments, but also were further down the road. uh, They were down the road far enough that they could recognise that this was coming, particularly in the context of TNFD, and start to test it. We had a lot of industries that are only really starting to test now, so almost a year later, because the TNFD is officially released in version one. So we saw that these industries were much further ahead because they'd already started thinking about this much sooner. So, I mean, you touched a little bit there on on compliance and TNFD. I mean, do you think that these new kind of standards and regulations are really driving the demand for your service? They absolutely are in a way that nature is being discussed at a scale that it just wasn't beforehand. We had conversations with sustainability managers over a year and a half ago. And again, they they realised that interface, but it was not with the same urgency that the TNFD has driven. I think there's also the actual process of developing the, the TNFD from its draft modes over the last two years has fostered a lot of discussion both within industry but also between industries as to how do we actually bring this into practice. And I think that discussion has also fostered a lot more collaboration between research and industry in asking the questions of what data is needed, but also how much data is enough data and what exactly should we be measuring. So I think those discussions have really have been sort of driving the conversation. And from a compliance point of view, there's sort of there's two ways to this. We always talk about this in our startup as to are we motivating customers with the carrot or the stick? And I think for a lot of businesses that are only just starting to pilot, you know, the TNFD now, it's absolutely the stick. You know, the, the looming legislation um, that's coming in on a national level is absolutely a motivation for a lot of businesses that probably wouldn't have tackled this otherwise. But as a business, Silo really has been working with customers that are working more with the carrot. You know, they're really interested in working with companies that are interested at being the forefront of this space. And I think it's a very similar pattern to what we've seen in carbon. There's businesses that want to be at the forefront of change and make that part of their brand and their mission and their impact. And that means that they'll also go beyond and above what the legislation says. And that's absolutely what we've seen in the companies that we're working with right now. Those are the businesses that aren't just towing the line and doing the bare minimum to satisfy the TNFD. They really are thinking much further ahead in terms of the nature strategy that they want to incorporate in the long term and not just minimise their impact, but actually 
actively regenerate their impact on nature. And that's why we found it so inspiring over the last particularly six months, really seeing how the recommendations that we've generated in the platform are being integrated into everyday decisions that these businesses are making. We can really see a tangible impact that both we're having, but also those businesses are having on their sites as well. And you brought up the the regulations. You know, one of the questions that Raven and myself always ask our guests, we had, for example, a gentleman called Peter from a company called Metabolic last week on our podcast. And we asked him the same question. That is, with so many new and complex standards coming in, one concern we have as industry analysts is that companies will find it confusing. Do you see that playing out in Australia at all? Yeah, great question. And I guess the simple answer is absolutely. You know, there is so many global frameworks all approaching this in a slightly different way, and that absolutely adds to the complexity. I think some of the major ones that we've been aware of and sort of taking into account in the development of our platform have been the TNFD, but also science-based targets for nature. And we're also seeing more industry-specific frameworks like Green Star for property development come up as well. So there's lots of different layers to this, both on a global framework, but also a national government legislation point of view. For example, in Australia, we've got the the nature repair market and some incoming legislation associated with that. And then those industry specific frameworks. So there's a lot happening and it's all moving quite quickly and simultaneously, which is making it very overwhelming for these businesses to go, yes, this is important, but where do we start? And I think that's a big part of the reason that we've sort of wanted to be part of this journey. You know, we were part of the data catalyst for the TNFD and are part of those discussions. And we've noticed that the TNFD is aware of this challenge and has integrated a lot of the outputs from TNFD with SBTN. So there is some interoperability between these frameworks, but ultimately there's still multiple frameworks they have to address. And so I think the first point of call and, and the way that we've sort of tried to tackle this challenge is to make that data available so that it can be transmuted into a variety of different formats that are relevant for each framework. I don't think you know every business will directly report to SBTN, Green Star, and TNFD and the national legislation. They'll pick the ones that are appropriate for them and which ones they, you know, one comply to, but are also having a public acknowledgement that they will sort of comply to. And they'll they'll transmute the data that they have available to those frameworks. But the first piece is really about understanding that impact. And once we have that data available, then transforming into the format that we need is actually relatively simple from a software perspective. And and that's why we sort of really try to work with businesses from day one to understand what their strategy is, which frameworks are a priority. And then we can go from there to sort of really make that data as useful as possible in a variety of different formats. Talking of data, you have built a very comprehensive database, right? We have, yeah. A a big part of our focus in developing the front end of the platform, but also the back end. And and that's included aggregating a variety of different data formats. The first priority was actually data sets that are already openly available. You know, open source data sets, particularly for nature and biodiversity, are readily available all over the world. The challenge has been for a lot of corporates that they're in a highly complex, unavailable format. You know, a lot of them are really hard to clean and process and analyze to make useful for that corporate disclosure context. And so a big part of the work we've been doing is aggregating a lot of those data sets. Um, But we also partner with other data providers. So for example, IBAT is an internationally recognized aggregator of a few major global biodiversity data sets. So we're an official partner of theirs, but also uh, remote sensing technologies. So including satellite data, 
We also look at drone data, bioacoustic data, making those tools available for uh, businesses to do that remote sensing and, and get a good understanding of, of the existing biodiversity on their site. And we can aggregate all those together in the platform so that they have all the high quality data that they need. And along with publicly available data sets that you procure through partnerships, you also, I understand, help users contribute their own data. Is that through the drones? Yeah, exactly. So when we develop partnerships with these remote sensing technologies, it's almost like like a remote sensing marketplace. So if we don't have enough data to be confident for long-term monitoring, for example, based on the open source data sets that we have, we can suggest to customers to work with one of our remote sensing partners to deploy drones or bioacoustics to deploy onto their site. And that data can then be fed directly into the platform um, rather than this sort of additional handling of data sets between on-site monitoring and then the in-platform monitoring as well. It makes that transition between on-the-ground surveying and long-term reporting really, really simple. We've heard that's been quite a challenge for a lot of ecological consultants in this space. So transitioning that sort of data handling into a streamlined pipeline has been a, a big priority for us. Then you use this data to model the impact into specific metrics, right? Could you explain that to us? You know, how do you go about the process? What type of metrics? Yes, it's been very experimental over sort of the last 12 months because I think that's been quite a contentious point, particularly in the development of the TNFD as to what exactly are the metrics that we should be looking at and how many is enough. So I think a big part of our focus and a part of our values at Xylo are to make things that are inherently complex in biodiversity easy to understand but still remain meaningful. And so that has meant that we, you know, both Camille and I having a background in ecology and conservation, applying metrics and quantifying methodologies that we would use in an academic context. So for example, doing ecological monitoring, there's a variety of indices that we use to essentially come up with a single metric that communicates the level of biodiversity in an area. So up until this point, we've used an indice that essentially we can scale to between zero and one with one being sort of ideal biodiversity and practically impossible to, to get, and zero being absolutely no biodiversity at all. And that gives us a quantification of one, the biodiversity being the number of species, but also the number of individuals in each species. So, for example, if we had only two species but a large population in each, that would still be quite a small biodiversity index. Whereas if we have lots of species and a healthy population of all those species, that's going to be closer to one. So it's, it's you know, explaining a lot of those kinds of concepts in a few different metrics that mean that we can one track them over time, but also communicate them in a way that's easy to develop a target around and something that we can then track in relation to the effectiveness of management strategies like vegetation planting or adding wildlife corridors. We've got a variety of metrics that sort of track the efficacy of those. And now with the release of the TNFD only a week or two ago, there is some more specific metrics that were released in that version one as well, which will be continuing to include in the platform. A lot of the ones that they've outlined are actually indirectly related to biodiversity. They're more sort of broader nature metrics, meaning pollution, water, air quality and such. Uh, the ones that are actually more explicitly addressing biodiversity in the state of nature haven't been explicitly outlined in the 
the version one of the TNFD. And so that's something that we're continuing to test in our platform because there is no specific advice for users who want to integrate the metrics from the TNFD straight away. Yeah. Jenna, tell me one thing. I mean, how does artificial intelligence and machine learning play a role in all this? Yeah, so we use artificial intelligence and machine learning in sort of three major uh, layers of our product. The first layer is really actually in the processing component of the data that we bring into the platform. So in a conservation and a biodiversity context, we include data sets that are unstructured. That includes image and video footage that we deploy in the environment to gather information about uh, species that have been detected on the site. And that means that we actually have really large volumes of data that we need to process. That's talking about, you know, days and hours of video footage that need to be processed so we can detect how many species have been seen in those videos and images. And machine learning is a fantastic tool for doing this, particularly uh, given some of the advancements in machine learning over the last couple of years. In conservation context, you know, I was talking only a few years ago to managers on the ground who were using these tools, but only getting sort of 60 to 70% accuracy in the outputs that we're generating from machine learning. Uh, whereas today we can quite comfortably get up to 85, 90% accuracy in the outputs that we get based on the quality of our training data as well. So that's, first of all, a fantastic just way we can process data in a really quick and efficient way um, and also get really high quality, good metadata that we can then integrate with the rest of our data sets. So that's number one. The second layer is also adding additional context to the data points that we have. So looking specifically at species occurrence data, we bring in species occurrence data from a variety of sources, including citizen science initiatives. That includes people on the ground adding data points about species that they've seen in person. Quite often this is really useful because it has a species and a latitude and longitude attached to it. But there is so much other data that we can attach to that, particularly when we look at a bigger uh, context, like, an, like a whole ecosystem. When we have a whole list of species that we've detected on a site, we can actually start to then understand, um, using artificial intelligence, the habitat and food dependencies uh, that these species that we've detected rely on. So it adds an additional layer of complexity that we can then use this data for to extrapolate insights about, one, the state of biodiversity, but also help us generate recommendations for how users can minimise their impact on biodiversity as well. So there's lots of processing in that element to draw on other data sets and use artificial intelligence to add that additional context. The third layer is then a much sort of earlier stage iteration of artificial intelligence that we're looking to implement and we're currently testing. And that's more, much more around generative AI. So uh, I know that a lot of people have started sort of playing around with ChatGPT over sort of the last 12 months, and it's been a really exciting iteration of technology that we've seen on the consumer scale. But I think one of the things that I'm really personally excited about with generative AI is its ability to translate really complex ideas and bring together lots of different data sources together to explain them to a person who has no understanding of those data sets whatsoever. And I really see that as something that we can use in our platform, particularly when communicating complex data and biological understanding from those data sets to people like sustainability managers who have no background in ecology or conservation. And so an example being we can use the, the outputs that we've done from analysing all this data to then create a one, two sentence summary for a sustainability manager about the state 
of the ecosystem to actually extrapolate the insights from those biodiversity indices and also potentially transform them into reporting formats. So rather than just having sort of three templates for reports, we could actually use generative AI to bring together all the outputs that we've got from our data set and spit them out into a report of any format of the user's choosing as well. So there's lots of flexibility in actually the usability of the data, but also education for the users as well. Wow, it's been great to learn about all the different components of Zylo. So it would be really interesting to hear a real-world example of a, of a company that's deployed Zylo into their, into their processes. So, I mean, could you give us maybe an example of a company in the property market that is, has used your services? Yeah, absolutely. So a great example is a project we worked on with Development Victoria. So they are the government branch of the state of Victoria in Australia, and they do a lot of property development, but also on a more commercial scale as well. And the the project that we worked on them with is an urban renewal site. They had a site that was actually old farming land that they wanted to turn into a green corridor and a community space that they could then regenerate for, for both the community, but also for the surrounding environment. And so what we did was we, first of all, worked with them to understand what were their, their goals, what did they really want to achieve, and what kinds of outputs that they want to, uh, to gain from this exercise. And we gathered all of the available data sets that we had for that site and created a baseline biodiversity assessment for them. That included what species we detected, identifying what we call flagship species, which are, we consider them like proxies or um, symbolic of the health of the biodiversity on that site. Then we can track those populations over time. And we also identified some of the major threats to the biodiversity on that site. It was a really interesting one because the site was actually quite prone to one, increasing temperatures due to climate, as, as most places are, but also flood risk. And so what we did when we were generating our recommendations was really considered species that were climate proof. So because they were doing a whole range of vegetation planting on that site, we wanted to make sure that we could recommend species that were one, supporting the existing biodiversity on that site, but also climate proof in that they were less susceptible to flood and climate events that would um, decimate the biodiversity on that site. So it was really exciting because we found some fantastic species at, in the baseline biodiversity assessment, including things like the platypus, as well as some quite endangered moth species as well. And so the outputs were those recommended actions, one, to minimise biodiversity, but also those recommended species that they could go ahead and use as vegetation recommendations. So it was a really rewarding project and it was one of their sort of first steps to actively engage biodiversity recommendations in the planning process of a project like that. Fascinating. Jada, in the energy market, do you have a similar story? We do, yeah. In the energy space, we worked with another sort of state-specific company uh, called Endeavour Energy. They manage a lot of power grids and power infrastructure across New South Wales and Australia. And one of their projects, they were sort of in the very early stages of developing a nature strategy. And it's a really interesting use case because for the power infrastructure, so we're, we're talking things like power lines, for example, when they set up this infrastructure, they have to cut down all of the vegetation and trees that sit below that infrastructure for, for health and safety reasons and for you know accessibility reasons as well. And they'd set themselves sort of early stage nature strategy to, for every tree that they chopped down, they wanted to plant a new one. 
And so they came to us with the problem of we've set this goal, but we want to know exactly where should we be planting and what species should we be planting in order to actually have the biggest possible biodiversity contribution and impact that we can. And so they gave us sort of the broader region that they were operating all of this power infrastructure in. And very similar to the previous example, we did a baseline biodiversity assessment. And it was actually a really exciting assessment because a lot of it was covered over National Park as well. So it was really fantastic to see a lot of the endangered and critically endangered species from that area included in this assessment. And just like I was mentioning in the previous question, when we look at habitat and food dependencies, we used all of that data to inform the species that we would recommend for planting. And we recommended them across five sites along the Shoalhaven region, as well as the number of species of each as well. So looking at the breakdown of how many individuals of each species should they plant in order to optimise the surrounding ecosystem that they were planting in. And again, this is something that it's a really simple target in terms of trees in and trees out. But when we do these assessments, we can really optimise the impact. It's not just about planting random trees. It's about being really strategic about what species are going to be the best for that region and for the species that we've detected that are critically endangered. And so, again, another really rewarding project. You know, one thing that surprises me as you tell these stories is that it is not just monitoring biodiversity, right? In the property example that you gave, you are recommending species that are climate resilient. So which means that to a certain extent, you will have to monitor or at least predict climate risks like flood risks or temperature rise risk in that particular region. So do you bring in other climate modeling software into your system to do that? Yeah, great question. We're we're not currently. It is actually in our roadmap because, as you say, there is absolutely this intersection between nature and climate. And particularly in the climate conversation now, we're seeing a lot of nature-based solutions being suggested as, as great ways to minimise carbon impact. And so these two strategies are starting to overlap. We are bringing in some level of climate data to get an understanding for when we look at a site is it particularly prone to things like flood and fire? But the next level for us and, and something that we're looking to address at the start of next year is, is actually that climate modelling overlay so that you can start to see, see both of those things. So we will be looking for climate partnerships in terms of platforms that are already doing that re- uh, monitoring and reporting, but also as data sets that we can use to help inform our recommendations as well to make sure we're being as specific, site-specific as possible with our recommendations. Well, well, as our audience listens uh, to this particular section of our conversation, I really want them to take away three things. One is, uh, Jada, the point that you made about the type of companies and their motivations. There is a stick approach that is, you know, regulations coming in, uh, national regulations which adhere to international standards. But obviously, what we heard you say very clearly that many of the companies that you are uh, working with, and in particular the examples that you gave from property and energy market, are companies which are uh, at the forefront in the entire startup literature. We have these companies which are early adopters of technology because they hope to get a competitive edge. And I think that's really what we are seeing here. The other thing that I think people should just rewind and listen to several times is the very clear explanation that you gave about the use of data and the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning 
and data in the software that you have developed. Machine learning helps identify species. Artificial intelligence helps understand the entire system level impact and also explain that complex system level impact in a simple way to facility managers who obviously don't understand either data, AI, or biodiversity, but are sensitive to these topics. The examples that you gave are particularly interesting because I, what I, what I really liked about those examples, Jada, is in both cases, you started by saying, we asked the client what their main goal was. And I think this is a very important point for people developing critical technology that is to root the technology in the strategic objectives of the client and not to push the technology for its own sake. That's what I kind of learned from this section of our podcast. It's been fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting um, that you say that because I think it's particularly when you're an early stage business, uh, working directly with customers and being really close in terms of interacting and understanding their goals and motivations is essential in order to build a product that's actually going to uh, be adopted. You know, we're, we're still an early stage company and because of that, we, you know, we want to be scalable, which means we don't actually want to operate as consultants and, and do that kind of process every single time. But when you're developing a product in those early stages, it's absolutely crucial that you operate in that way because then it gives you confidence about the patterns and the recurring motivations that you see across customers and and that's a big part of the reason that we're working with both property developers and energy infrastructure companies they have the same motivations they have the same needs and that's only we've only been able to work that out through that constant feedback and that constant interaction with those customers as well I think data as a work in a software product, which is used for learning management systems. And I can share with you a couple of things that I learned there. One is that even though you want to build a scalable product, which works across industries, you do have to follow up the product with services. And the services mm-hmm. team has to always ask, how does my product meet my client's goals. So that was the first thing. The second is that even in a fairly mature product, but the one that we ran, a learning management system, companies tended to specialize in niches. So for example, you know, some total systems where I worked, you know, we we were a leader in, in the financial industry and we were a leader in, in the retail industry. So in the retail industry, Walmart and Target and the financial industry, City, Wells Fargo, and so on and so forth. It is surprisingly difficult even if you want to build a scalable product to work across multiple niches, but just you know, just some reflections on my own career. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. It's a really interesting time that we're in, and I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's We start to see more complexity as we sort of bridge across multiple industries, but yeah, they, they at the moment all have very similar needs in terms of the ones that we're talking to. But yeah, I think uh, if we ban beyond property development to energy, it'll probably be a very, a very different product and a very different service. So you've spoken a little bit about the the kind of software product and, and data elements of Xylo and how you're growing out into kind of new territories. I mean, what does your your in-house team look like? Uh, what do you look for when you're building Xylo? When we're looking for it, first of all, we're a very small team. We currently have about um, eight of us across business, but also data and tech. At the moment, when we're hiring, we are looking for people who have some understanding of biodiversity or ecology, because when we're dealing with quite large and complex data sets, we need data 
uh, technicians who feel confident with the kinds of data sets that we're working with. So we have a fantastic data scientist that we hired not too long ago who actually used to work in ecological consulting. And so is very intimately you know, confident with the, the data that we're managing. Um, but also, you know, I think more broadly, just passion for the mission that we're, we're working on. We're not building this to necessarily make money. We're building this to have to have impact, a real impact on nature. And I think that excites a lot of people. Even if you don't have any explicit experience in nature, having a passion for the environment and a curiosity to understand how we can use data to empower people and inform decision making is something that we absolutely look for in all our hires across uh, business but also technology. So you're also the host of the Nature Positive podcast. I mean what kind of questions or advice would you have for myself and Sanjoy? Yeah so the the Nature Positive Network podcast has been a labour of love. It's something that we've only really just started and just wrapped up our first season of and it's been really exciting because you know similar to you guys we've interviewed a whole range of different people from all walks of life and all different experiences. I think one of the things that you guys are already doing, but what I always recommend to people who want to start a podcast to lead with curiosity, you know, it's good to have a plan and some general notes to begin with, but quite often the conversations that you have take you in a direction that you probably wouldn't expect. And I think it's those kinds of conversations that are just two people talking and learning about each other is uh, the ones that I personally like to listen to the most. So yeah, thank you guys for hosting a, a fantastic conversation. You're very welcome. It's, it's certainly been just fascinating to learn more about your background and, and how Xylo came to be. I mean, if people want to get in touch with you after listening to our podcast, I mean, how do they do that? Yes, yeah, so there's a few different ways. Um, if you want to learn more about what we're doing at Xylo Systems, read more about our use cases and request a demo if you're interested, you can go to our website, which is just www.xylo.systems. Um, and if you want to reach out to me personally, feel free to message me on LinkedIn, just Jada, J-A-D-A, Anderson. I'm always happy to chat to people who are curious about what we're doing. And we will put these um, contact details in our show notes. With that, thank you very much, Jada. Fantastic. Thank you both. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for joining us, Jada. It's been really interesting to learn a bit more. Yeah, thank you, Raven. Lovely to meet you both. If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and YouTube.